If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. Welcome on this fourth Sunday of Lent to Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Let us bow our heads together. Spring break did not come a moment too soon, Holy One. We're halfway to summer, knowing we'll make it there, skidding in sideways and totally worn out, as has been so famously described. But today, no one is taking attendance. There are no lesson plans to follow. There are no bells rushing us to the next class, the next period, the next test. Midterm exams are done and dusted. Not all of us get an official spring break, of course, but we can all pause for a moment, even if for just a moment. Right now, in this moment, Both feet are on the floor. We've dropped our shoulders and relaxed our eyebrows. A deep breath in, held for just a few seconds, then released. Another. And another. We are not scrolling, organizing, responding, planning, analyzing, comparing, competing, or fretting. Notifications are off. You have reminded us that we are to be still and know that I am God. Let us be still until it is true that we, like the psalmist, have calmed and quieted my soul. Help us to rest, Holy One, in this moment. May we linger here with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh, that we would remember that this is always, always available to us. We pray in the name of Jesus, who so very often found refuge in prayer. Amen. 
Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. As he walked along, Jesus saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, Then how are your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he received his sight. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes, then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that, through, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. 
We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and you are trying to teach us. And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now you say, We see, your sin remains. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. So let us begin with an an acknowledgement that we made a few weeks ago. Scripture often uses problematic metaphors. Disability metaphors in the Gospels are used very often and include blindness, deafness, and lameness. Blindness, we are reminded by theologian Nicola Torbett, is used frequently in the New Testament to call into question who can actually perceive what is happening and in contrast to those whose understanding is compromised by their commitment to a worldview that is counter to God's view. But using blindness as a metaphor is problematic since figurative blindness in a world designed for people with sight has a real impact on people who are blind and for whom the metaphor is rarely, if ever, helpful. Reverend Bruce Reyes Chow points out that it is an ableist notion that blindness is an inherent deficiency. Metaphors using blindness are built on the idea that this physical state of being is somehow less than, and regardless of the cause, is a malady, an affliction that must be solved, healed, and fixed. The culture of Jesus' time did not think any differently, Thus, the many examples of physical and mental conditions being used as a stand-in for sin and brokenness. The text begins with this assumption. The text says that as Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. And based on the details given later in the text, we can assume that Jesus and the disciples saw the man begging. The disciples' first reaction was not their best reaction. They did not think to pull out a few dollars to give to the man. They did not check on his well-being or offer any other assistance. The disciples' first reaction is to start a debate. Who is to be blamed for this man having been born blind? Bishop Shelby Spong, in his book, The Fourth Gospel, Tales of a Jewish Mystic, explains the common theological wisdom of that day held that sickness and tragedy were instruments of divine punishment. Religion had proclaimed that with the all-powerful supernatural God in charge, there must 
be an explanation for human pain and tragedy that protected the justice of God. So sickness meant that someone was getting what they deserved. Since this particular man's status of blindness had predated his birth, it was kind of hard to see him as being guilty of some overt act of wickedness and thus deserving of his blind status. So the disciples speculated that his blindness must have been punishment inflicted on his parents. That idea had appeared before in Hebrew scriptures. The child born after David raped Bathsheba had died. The biblical narrative informs us to punish David for his sins. This was the interpretation that had been handed to the disciples, and they had accepted it. And we can identify, we like to be sure and secure about the world. And this is an explanation, a cause and effect, if you will, that makes people think that we can avoid certain circumstances or conditions. It makes us feel safe, as if we can control everything that happens to us. But Jesus knew that this wasn't true. He did not accept that interpretation of the story in 2 Samuel, so he rejects the premise of the question. Neither, neither the man nor his parents sinned, Jesus replies. He understood that fear of divine retribution might help control human behavior, but the God who would punish the offspring for sins of the parents was clearly an ogre, not a God that one would ever call Abba or Father, whose nature was love and whose purpose was to enhance life. This initial exchange between Jesus and the disciples offers us the opportunity for some very discomforting reflection. But we expect this, though, because the church should be a place where everyone is safe, but no one is comfortable. As we noted earlier, the disciples' first reaction was to debate the blindness and not deal at all with the human in front of them. We see this in our time, too. As Reverend Reyes Chow notes, all too often, empathetic inquiry is set aside, and we rush to diagnose and treatment before we even know the nature and depth of the problem we are trying to address, or if it is even a problem at all. We too easily view one another through a one-dimensional lens, so much so that all we can do is start down a path towards misplaced questions and mistaken assumptions. It is remarkable how quickly each of us can transform into doctors, therapists, sociologists, teachers, neuroscientists, epidemiologists, really any profession, in order to explain someone else's situation or condition. Millennials, bless our hearts, know acutely what I'm talking about. If we were to frame a common question about our generation, as the disciples might have asked it, the text would say, are millennials the first generation to be poorer than their parents because they buy avocado toast (laughs) or because they were given participation trophies growing up? (laughs) And Jesus would say, Neither the avocado toast nor the participation trophies are the cause. 
It's that, among other things, between 1980 and 2020, the average price of an undergraduate degree increased 169%. I mean, Jesus probably would have said that if he had access to the study done by Georgetown University Center on Education and Workforce. <laughs> Obviously, millennials aren't the only targets. It is so so easy for us to turn genuine struggles of the human condition into solvable formulas of cause and effect when we actually really don't know because we haven't actually talked to the person in question, just like the disciples started speculating about the man born blind without even acknowledging his humanity. These assumptions are made all the time. They must be in jail because, she must be poor because, she must have so many kids because, he must be experiencing mental health issues because, they must be homeless because, he must be behind academically because. In what ways have we filled in those blanks with our assumptions? The first corrective step is to be aware of those assumptions. The second is to build that benevolent connection we talked about last week. And this could be the rest of the sermon, but much to our relief, the story keeps going, even if the next part is really gross. After Jesus shakes his head at the disciples, he then hawks up a loogie spits on the ground, makes a paste out of the saliva and dirt, and spreads the mud on the man's eyes, and then tells the man to go take a bath. This is why some of us don't do public pools. In all seriousness, these instructions are an echo of the Hebrew Bible story that we find in the book of 2 Kings, which tells of Elisha curing Naaman of the symptoms of leprosy by having him bathe in the waters of the Jordan River, in the Midrashic tradition, the details of healing stories are frequently recycled, which, as Bishop Spong reminds us, was another way that the biblical authors signaled that they were not literalists, but interpreters of a new God experience. It is also another way that the biblical authors signaled, as I have said before, and cannot emphasize enough, the miracle is never the point of the Bible story. It is a shiny distraction, but not today, Satan. We are focused. <laughs> but to get there, we do need to acknowledge that the story tells us the man does as Jesus tells him to do, and as the text says, he came back able to see. This is when things really go sideways. No one believes what has happened. I mean, you heard the text, but to recap, people are absolutely befuddled. Can this really be the man they know only as someone who previously begged for their charity? And even though the man goes Taylor Swift on them, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me, they still don't believe him. When they ask how he has recovered his sight, he explains that he simply followed Jesus' directions. They don't believe that, so they want to interview Jesus. And when that isn't possible, they haul the man in front of religious leaders, 
who one might think would be delighted for this person who has experienced a miracle, but they are actually mad about it, which is not unlike folks experiencing the miracle of partial student loan forgiveness and some people being mad about it. The story continues with some trash talk about Jesus and the parents being interrogated about their son. The crowd questions the man again about Jesus and how this happened, and he tells them again. Ultimately, we read over 20 entire verses of people fussing, fighting, and name-calling. And after all that, what happened? They cast him out. They drove the man out of town. It's easy to miss that point because Jesus finds him afterwards and does what Jesus does. Everything sort of ends with a happily ever after vibe. But the fact is that the man was driven out of town, away from his parents, away from anyone he ever knew, away from the possibility of community. These people knew what they knew, and nothing the man could do or say could change their minds. And the result was to deny a human being inclusion and community. Author Adam Grant, in his book Think Again, helps us understand how we fall into the same trap of knowing what we know. Compared to most people, he writes, how much do you think you know about each of the following topics? Ready? Why English became the first official language of the United States. Why women were burned at the stake in Salem. What job Walt Disney had before he drew Mickey Mouse. On which space flight humans first laid eyes on the Great Wall of China. Why eating candy affects how kids behave. On the above questions, if you felt you knew anything at all, think again. America has no official language. Suspected witches were hanged in Salem, not burned. Walt Disney didn't draw Mickey Mouse. It was the work of an animator named UBI Works. You can't actually see the Great Wall of China from space. And the average effect of sugar on children's behavior is zero. These examples of knowing what we know are likely to be dismissed as inconsequential, some trivia to pull out of your back pocket when the time is right. But we know that there are plenty of consequential life or death scenarios playing out right now in which there are people at risk of being cast out of community because religious authoritarianism creates a culture in which people would rather be right than get it right. Religious authoritarianism creates a culture in which people are cast out rather than included in community. Currently, transgender beloveds top that list, but it also includes pregnant patients, classroom teachers, drag queens, and librarians. As our governor recently told the New York Times, Oklahoma isn't for everybody. 
This attitude is explained by scholar theologian Ellen Ott Marshall, who writes, like other forms of authoritarianism, religious authoritarianism demands unquestioned obedience, dismisses all other sources of knowledge, and denies legitimacy to all other positions. Religious authoritarianism is antithetical to democratic discourse, enslaves individual conscience, and facilitates violence against people who hold contrary religious and philosophical positions. We pave the way for religious authoritarianism whenever we insist that we alone know the will of God, that our knowledge of God's will is beyond the reach of critical inquiry, and that divine endorsement for a particular policy trumps any other considerations about it. But we have the antidote, friends, in part because we are committed to learning from our sacred stories in which people were not their best selves. And that is theological humility, which Ellen Ott Marshall defines as a posture that admits limitation of knowledge and partiality of perspective, explicitly and deliberately practices hermeneutics and remains transparent about faith commitments and, and is accountable to other sources of knowledge. Theological humility allows us to admit when we are wrong or when we just don't know, when we realize that getting it right is more important than being right. I will say Theological humility might not seem like it will be enough considering the religious authoritarianism we're up against. But Brene Brown writes, people who demonstrate humility don't lack confidence or conviction. They hold strong views, but they are open to hearing other points of view they are curious and willing to adjust their beliefs when faced with new or conflicting information. And even if theological humility were disadvantageous, we follow a teacher who used the power of love to defeat death. Religious authoritarianism should be shaking in its boots. Enough now. We have work to do. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.